So tell us where the idea really sprouted from. When did it hit you that like, oh, if we create an Uber for the lawn care industry, that's really going to change the way people do business. The idea for GreenPal was a very straightforward one. I, I saw what Uber and Airbnb were doing for real world transactions. We knew we had to get buyers and sellers on the platform at the same time. And I thought, okay, an app needs to exist for this industry. The way we got over that cold start chicken and egg problem was just sheer focus. If you're starting a network enabled business, focus can really be to your advantage in terms of just getting the flywheel going, getting the critical mass going in as small a confined area as you can, and then repeating that over and over again. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend, Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
Brian Clayton is a CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. So get this, you guys. Just a few episodes ago, we had the man that made the 80-20 principle famous. His name is Richard Kosh. I think it was episode 496. And Richard talked in depth about true network businesses like Uber that is nothing but an app that connects people that provide a service and people that need a service. Richard mentioned in today's world, one would be crazy for not building, starting, investing, and working in or with a network business. And I agree. Network businesses are making life more convenient one additional app at a time. And so Brian, our guest today, has created GreenPal, a true network business for the lawn care industry, connecting those people that need lawn care work with those lawn care professionals that want to come and take care of somebody's lawn. GreenPal has been called the Uber for lawn care by Entrepreneur Magazine. It has over 200,000 active users, completing thousands of transactions per day. Before starting GreenPal, Brian founded Peachtree Inc., one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, growing it to over $10 million a year in annual revenue before it was acquired by Lusa Holdings in 2013, and he's on the show today. Brian, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Dude, it's great to have you on. And it's fascinating because, you know, just a few weeks ago, we talked to to Richard Kosh. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, The 80-20 Principle before, but imagine you understand the concept, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just a, That is a principle that I kind of see the world through. So I, I love that. I'll have to go back and listen to that. Yeah, me too. So he has an updated version of his book, uh, The 80-20 Principle. I think it was published in 2017, where he talks directly about these network businesses like GreenPal. And he gives these different examples and how fascinating it is that, you know, using the 80-20 principle or even like 90-10 or 99-1 principle of just providing uh, an app and a service with person that's sitting over here in a neighborhood and person that's sitting over there in a neighborhood. You can connect them uh, to help them with their landscaping and their lawn needs really easily. And I grew up in, in the Midwest and I worked in the lawn care business when I was a young guy as well. And uh, I worked closely with the founder of that business and we would sit around, this was pre like smartphones, right? We would sit around sometime, you know, thinking, just hoping we would have a lawn to mow or maybe going on, knocking <laughs> on somebody's door from a past client and saying, Hey, you know, I see your grass is a little high, you know, can we mow your lawn? Right. Yeah. And, and I think that pain, cause you, you started out the same, right? You started yes. out bootstrapping as a, in the lawn care industry, right? Yes, yes, uh, that's that's exactly right. My first business was a lawn mowing business. My dad forced me to go mow the neighbor's yard one day. He said, "You got a job to do. Get off your butt. You're gonna go cut the neighbor's grass." Yeah. Luckily, he did. That just stuck with me. Uh, I built a little lawn mowing business in high school and in college, and just kept growing it little by little every year. Over a 15-year period of time, built it into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, where I live. Got it over 150 people, over 10 million dollars a year in revenue, and uh, and, so, and then I, it was acquired in 2013. So, taking that business, just me and a push mower, to me and 150 people, 80, 90 trucks going out every day. I kind of learned a lot about the industry and the hard way of how to build a business like that. So when I sold it, I, I retired. I kind of took some time off, got bored, realized, wow, uh, something's missing. I need to get back in the game. Want to get back in the arena, and uh, the idea for GreenPal was a very straightforward one for me. I, I saw what 
Uber and Airbnb were doing for real world transactions. And I thought, okay, an app needs to exist for this industry. I've just spent the last 15 years of my life in and uh, set out to, to build the, the marketplace that, that connects buyers and sellers in this industry and recruited two co-founders and we just went to work. Been at this for eight years. We're an eight year overnight success and <laughs> you know, got several hundred thousand people using the app and uh, doing $20 million in revenue a year. Uh-huh. And so it started out very humbly, but we just kept at it. And so here we are today. I imagine as a business owner in the landscape business, um, you had thousands and maybe millions of, with the size of your former company, uh, millions of unworked hours that you had to pay out for the guys that were sitting around and you didn't have a lawn to mow, or even as a young man doing the same thing, sitting around, how can I get another lawn to mow? And so tell us where the idea really sprouted from. When did it hit you that like, oh, if we create an Uber for the lawn care industry, that's really going to change the way people do business in this industry? Yeah. So as I grew that business, to your point, in the early days, it was very much like that. We were passing out door hangers, passing out flyers, anything we could do to try to get more customers that were nearby the customers we were already servicing, try to build that route density. And uh, it was hard and, and still is hard, uh, especially if you're just getting started. And so that was a pain that I experienced. I had the scars. And then as that business grew, once I got it over, you know, 20 people, 30, 40 people sending out multiple crews every day, uh, the business had a name brand in our marketplace. It was well known and we had trucks everywhere. And so we would get all of these phone calls, people just wanting us to come do basic lawn mowing services for them. And as the business grew, we no longer did that small type of job. We did big commercial jobs, big office parks, apartments, airports, things of that nature. But we would no longer do the basic $33 lawn mowing. Right. Uh, but the problem was these people couldn't get anybody else on the phone. Uh, they couldn't get anybody else to call them back. They would, or they would be stood up or like they would hire somebody and they would never show up or they would ghost them. And so uh, one of the values I ran that business by and still do to this day was just to be helpful, to always try to help people if you can. And we would keep a a list of names and numbers by the phone and our receptionists would basically refer out, you know, smaller service providers for these hundred plus phone calls we were getting a day. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then, so it would work out. We would help people, you know, get matched up. And so I kind of saw that working uh, in analog and then something that, you know, and then like the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. uh, These people would call and leave voicemails for these folks. But then they would, then the same thing would happen. They wouldn't return a phone call. They wouldn't show up. And it was just like, it was just this virtuous cycle of people like bombarding us, wanting us to to come cut their grass. So I saw the problem for years. And and so when I sold the business, uh, you know, Uber started like really exploding and and Uber did something for the masses kind of conditioned us to understand that that you can push a button and something in the real world will happen Mm -hmm. and that did not exist before Uber you know the internet was still very much online it was still very much around digital experiences the idea of just pushing a button on an interface and like somebody coming to pick you up was new and it was a it was a magical thing and I saw this and I thought okay this needs to exist for this industry that I know and I was kind of solving my own problem. And luckily, uh, I didn't know what I didn't know in terms of the difficulty of building a, a network-enabled uh, business, a, a multi-sided marketplace, and the, mm-hmm. the technical challenges that go along with that. And uh, I was naive. And thank God I was naive because I never would have gotten started if I'd known how hard it was ultimately going to be. But uh, recruited two co-founders, and we all had kind of a chip on our shoulder. And we just put our nose down and just locked ourselves in an office for five years. 
That's like so many businesses though. If you knew how much work it was going to be before you, before, or like you started the business, you may not start the business. I even talk about that in podcasting, like podcasting is a lot of work. If I knew how much pod work podcasting was going to be before, <laughs> you I never would have done it. <laughs> right. But I'm in it now and I love it and I'm not stopping. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> but, um, thankfully like we have that drive as entrepreneurs to, to go after that and not give up once we like commit to the business for the most part until the, you know, you can't go any farther with that that business. But let, let's talk about um, building a network business because there's so many students and, and young people in Silicon Valley and around the world that want to start uh, a company like this, putting a uh, just essentially being the middleman or the middle app between person A and person B that needs a service and provides a service. And so it, can you can you like take us through the evolution of building uh, GreenPal? Yes, so network businesses are great in, because they're defensible. They're, you can build moats around them. Uh, the, the more people that use them, the more that they're valuable for, for the other people using them. That's kind of like the definition of a networked business is mm -hmm. does every user that comes into the network add value to other users into the network? So if you think about like the, like the best network-enabled business that, that, that there ever was, probably Facebook. And so in the early days, you know, they understood very quickly that they had to get eight of your friends onto the platform with you because that's how you got value out of it. And so if you think about your business in that context, it can help you architect it the right way. And it's kind of hard to go back and put network effects into a business later on. You kind of have to start it that way. And so for us, we kind of knew this in the early days um, and we kind of approached it from that that standpoint, we knew we had to get buyers and sellers on the platform at the same time. And the way we kind of got over that cold start chicken and egg problem was just sheer focus. We stayed in Nashville, Tennessee uh, with, with the product for four years okay. until we could figure out how to effectively get suppliers onto the platform and keep them kind of occupied for just a little bit until we got the, the consumers onto the platform. It took a long time to figure out how to do that. But we knew there was no reason to go into any other cities until we could get that playbook figured out. And so I think if you're starting a network enabled business, you know, focus can really be to your advantage in terms of just getting the flywheel going, getting the critical mass going in as small a confined area as you can, and then repeating that over and over again uh, as you try to go further and further wide. I think that one of the problems that a lot of marketplaces and, and network businesses run into is they try to boil the ocean uh, right out the gate. And that's really hard to do. And you can burn a lot of capital and time uh, you know, doing that. For us, we learned early on that we have to get it going in the, from the ground up in every single city that we operate in. And one interesting thing that we learned in the early days was that we can drive more transactions out of Knoxville, Tennessee than we can a Miami Beach, Florida, or we can drive more transactions out of a Wichita, Kansas than we can like a Los Angeles, California. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. You wouldn't think it that it would be that way. But Why is that? Well, it, what we learned was, is that too small a market, it's, it's too small, but too big right. a market, it's really hard to get that flywheel turning. But if you can get a market that's just right, you can get that flywheel uh, humming and it's kind of a virtuous cycle that reinforces itself. The more people that use it, the more vendors want to use it, the more vendors that use it, the better the pricing, the better the pricing, the, the more people that want to use it and so on. And so if you can get the flywheel turning, then you can really go deep into a market and kick off more activity, kick off more transactions. Whereas if you want to go into a really big metro, uh, it's really hard to get that critical mass of suppliers and, and consumers 
on the market and generate that 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 critical mass. And so we it's harder that to get early. across town too to do a job. That's right? exactly like right. Every, yeah, it's yeah. exactly right. So you're not just launching Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You're launching Hollywood, West mm-hmm. Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Brentwood, you know, Calabasas. You're launching all of these like individual like boroughs and neighborhoods. You're not launching LA. And so that's one thing that we learned in the early days was to drive the revenue, drive the, the transactions out of the smaller markets and then figure out the, the big fish later. And, uh, you know, we're self-funded. We haven't taken on any outside capital or any debt. And so that was one thing that we kind of like necessity is the mother of invention. We had to figure that out in order to survive. Right. That makes sense. You mentioned um, that you can build a moat around a network business. Can you describe that? Yeah. So. Uh, a network business uh, helps if, if your business truly is operating as a network. And mm-hmm. so it's it's easy to conflate these things. People conflate virality with network and they conflate mm-hmm. uh, just because two people are using the product on the, on opposite sides, they conflate it with a network. And so they really kind of really have to understand, am I building a network enabled business? So is think of like, like the telephone is a network enabled business, the fax machine, all the way moving up to, to stuff like Facebook. And so you want to look at certain businesses like, well, is Square a network business, and no, not really. It's it's really kind of a a, a SaaS uh, enabled marketplace. It's not a true network, or is Substack a network? Not really, because you know consumers don't come on to Substack to discover options. Uh, the the suppliers just using that technology to reach their their customers. So you have to really like dive in and understand: Am I building a a true marketplace and a true network? And, and once you figure that out, and once you understand, okay, yes. Every user that does come on, it adds cumulative value to other users on the network. Then you can like push the gas on that and do the things you need to do to to build out the network. Mm -hmm. Uh, And once you have the network in place, it really lends defensibility to to the business because it the there's like switching costs are higher you know you can create an experience that's 10 times better inside of the network than outside of the network and so for us we've constantly had to kind of go back to that and understand okay how do we create a, a wider gap between coming on GreenPow and, and booking a lawn mowing service versus just calling people off Craigslist and Yelp and Facebook and and constantly looking to make that gap bigger and bigger and bigger. And the network enables that because you come on the GreenPow, you get competitive bids from quality service providers that are rated and reviewed mm-hmm. and by people in the network. And, and these bids are competitive. So therefore you're getting a better pricing point than you would in analog and you're getting it done quicker and more convenient and and just frictionless and pictures and the of their work too which i was I, that's genius yeah that's right yeah i mean there's it's just so much more of a richer experience than you can get in analog or even just like trying to find somebody on on angie's list or home advisor it's a more rich experience and the network is what powers that experience yeah and so so we talked about this with richard also it's like the value of this network is depending on the amount of people that are on the network the green pal app in the network involved in the network businesses and so that grows over time and by word of mouth which is you know the best some of the best marketing you can do of course um when did things really start to take off for you guys with green pal when did you start to experience like you know more rapid growth and you realize this is a this is really going to work for us you know, um, there's been moments over the last eight years that were evidence of things were working and mm-hmm. they could be really small or a little bit bigger. You know, there's one key day, you know, in the early days, I think it might have been like year two 
when it was a Saturday, my two co-founders and I were working and I remember something like 50 people signed up and I didn't know who any of them were. <laughs> and that was a big moment. It was uh -huh. like, wow, okay. I don't know any of these people. Like I haven't told anybody about, you know, I've, I'm telling people about, it. I'm hustling up the word of mouth, but these particular like cohort of people, I didn't know any of them. And so that was like a validation for me and my team is understand, okay, we can actually market this thing. Uh, we can actually get the word out about it uh, in some sort of scalable approach because everything up to then had been, you know, passing out door hangers had been just like, posting on Facebook groups had been just trying to like do like guerrilla marketing. And so that was a key little small moment. And then uh, beyond that, some glim some glimmers was, was when we were able to mark, uh, launch our first market, which was Tampa, Florida. We didn't really know if we could get it to work outside of Nashville. And so that was a validator. And then beyond that, there has never been like a huge hockey stick uh, moment for us. It has been like winning by by a thousand just little things that we have done over and over and over again to make it better and better and better more reliable quicker faster cheaper um, and just constantly trying to iterate and improve the product experience on this one thing over and over again for eight years and and, and like this what uh, Jim Collins called the 20 mile march now that's really how how we've gotten from here to here there has never been this huge like breakout where we had you know massive amounts of, of escape velocity it's just been a continual march up up the mountain mm -hmm. and, I, and that could be a function of that we haven't raised capital you know a lot of times when you see like you know that big hockey stick moment a lot of times that founding team has figured out what works and then they just poured a ton of capital on that and when that works out it's great it's beautiful it works for everybody uh, but if you do that prematurely it's like like trying to attach, you know, the big old SpaceX rocket boosters <laughs> uh -huh. to the side of a barn, right. you know, it just, it just blows up. And so for us, we never really wanted to make that bet. We just wanted to take a sustainable approach to, to building a real business. So you guys started off in Nashville eight years ago. How many years was it until you launched in Tampa then? Three. Three. Okay. Yeah. And those were three really hard years because a couple things were happening. You know, we did not know how to build software. And so right out the gate, you know, we went through this really challenging uh, period where, where we thought we could pay a dev shop to do the, the tech execution and that flopped. It was a horrible failure. We uh -huh. pissed away like 150 grand doing that. And then, and this was of our own money, like credit cards and uh, line of <laughs> home equity line of credits. And, oh, you know, wow, just trying, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was very much like our backs were against the wall. And so that was tough. And then we realized, okay, we got to learn how to build software if we're going to like, you know, pray to have a prayer to be in the tech business. And so my co-founders and I just like poured over every blog post, every YouTube video, every online class that we could get our hands on to learn how to do this stuff. How do, mm -hmm. how are we going to build a website? How are we going to build a mobile app? How are we going to market this thing? And that took three years. Mm -hmm. And then all along, along, along with that, we're trying to like experiment and figure out the delicate orchestration between suppliers and consumers and what the, their two wants and desires are and like striking that balance between the two of them to where suppliers could make meaningful uh, in, uh, income and, and homeowners could get a delightful experience that they could not get otherwise. And that took a long time through trial and error. You know, we would over-optimize on one side at the expense of the other and then vice versa until we really figured out the delicate balance. Um, so how many users did you guys get before you, you launched in, in Tampa then? So in Nashville, we, we had a goal uh -huh. that we wanted to do 100 transactions a week. 
And okay. uh, now we're doing thousands, you know, like as we're speaking, mm -hmm. we're doing thousands. But like back then, you know, it was if we can just get a hundred to do it, use it every week. Cause like our one metric that we were really marking to was number of transactions per week. We knew that was a healthy metric. We knew if we could drive that number up, that that, that was indicative of a, of a healthy marketplace. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so once we got it to a hundred, we then set out a goal to, okay, okay, we got it to 100. If I know we get, with knowing it to 100, we can get it to 500. And if we get it to 500, then we'll go launch Tampa, Florida. And so we, we pressed on it for another year and we like, we closed out because we're a seasonal business. We closed out the, the second year at like 350. We didn't hit the 500. Uh -huh. And that really, really was hard to take. But, uh, but at least we grew the business 3X, you know, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. it was still small. And so the, by the third year, I was like, you know what, the hell with it. Like, uh, we didn't hit the number, but that's still enough validation. I think we can get it going in Tampa. And so, like, I went down to Tampa and spent, like, a month there. I know the inside of every coffee shop in Tampa Bay, uh -huh. uh, meeting with service providers and, and, like, interviewing them and getting them on the platform. And because I knew if we couldn't get that to work, that we were done. Yeah. And luckily we were able to, we were able to get to work. I was there like meeting with people. My co-founder is, was really banging on the PR, uh, you know, getting the word out to the local media and that helped us. And, uh, and so and once we got that going, then we figured out a little playbook to, to roll it out into every major market in the United States. So I'm curious why you chose Tampa, because I would think, you know, maybe Memphis, that's another uh, city in the same states. It might be similar type of mindset of people that could pick it up. But you went halfway across the country, all the way down to Tampa. I'm curious. A couple why. reasons. We knew that uh, we wanted something different because mm -hmm. we knew eventually, you know, we were going to have to like figure out a way to adapt it to different markets. And so that was the one of the first things. The second thing was we knew we wanted a year round market. Uh, so we knew we, we needed to like to, to mitigate the seasonality of it because uh, this was very much a bet the company decision. Mm -hmm. And the third reason, maybe even like the most informative was like, I had a buddy that, that lived there and I could stay with him for free. <laughs> <laughs> so is the reason so many businesses start up, right? Yeah. Somebody's crashing at their friend's couch. In yeah. friend's couch right? <laughs> and, 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 uh, I mean, another funny story there is, is, uh, <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, dude, show me around because I don't really I want to get a feel for like these neighborhoods and how dense they are. And like, I was like floored. I was like, wow, this these neighborhoods are huge. There's like 2000 homes in one neighborhood and they're all like the same size. And I'm like, man, our product could really work there. And it wasn't until like day two where he's driving me around that I realized all he's doing is just showing me like houses of like ex-girlfriends that he's had. Like, like that's all he's doing. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, that, there's no rhyme or reason to any of this. So for me, it was like a moment where I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? <laughs> I'm down here, I'm conducting market research. And here I thought we were like methodically working our way through Tampa. And no, I'm on, no. I'm on like a tour of my buddy's like past love affairs. That he's had. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it, man, it was very much a moment where it was kind of like, am I doing the right thing or uh -huh. not? What the hell am I doing? But, but for me, like what got me through that uncertainty in like those early years was, was like, I'm always going to be working on my best idea. I'm always going to be like just working on whatever it is that I think my best idea is. Luckily, I'm not very creative. And so I just uh, I just stuck with this thing. And my team was the same way. Like we just kept our heads down and kept working on it. What was the third market you guys launched? Atlanta, uh, a little closer to us. And we stayed in those three markets for like a year. Mm -hmm. And we were really trying to generate the, the revenue to like pay some damn engineers to do some of this hard work. Like we, okay. at this point in time, you know, we, none of us had taken a paycheck. Uh, we're three years in, my two co-founders are still working their day jobs. 
and uh, like, but we knew that we we needed to build out this team a little bit if we were going to move faster. And so, we were trying to like generate enough enough transactions, enough revenue to pay our first full time engineer, mm-hmm. and uh, and we were able to do that out of the first three markets. That was a big like growth period for us. And then once we got like our first engineer, now we have you know twenty twenty four. But you know once we got our first engineer, uh, we were able to like move a lot quicker because this guy was just surely better at this stuff than we were he'd been he'd been doing it for a lifetime whereas we had been doing it two and a half years uh how long did it take for tampa to pick up traction a good six months uh you know it was like really pushing on a string for the first two months uh and you know the way we got over that was just trying to keep these suppliers in the platform is just hustle up as many consumers as we could to to try it out and Mm -hmm. One way we were able to get over the cold start in Nashville and in Tampa was we would reach out to these lawn care services and we would pitch them on the idea. The app really sucked. It didn't have the features it needed. Um, I like it just was really horrible. But I was able to pitch them on the idea and I'll say, you know, and like in Nashville, if you were in the lawn mowing business, you knew who I was. Uh, in Tampa, you didn't. Right. Uh, but I was able to pitch them on the idea and say, hey, and, you know, I just sold, you know, it's had this eight figure exit. I just sold this business. Um I'll give you free mentoring and coaching. I will give you two hours of free coaching every month on how to grow your lawn mowing business if mm. you use my platform to uh, to bid on lawns and, and mow lawns. That's and clever. so that was kind of like the honey to to attract the early service providers. The first like two or 300 I knew personally, and that got us over the cold start of, of like – uh, getting the network effect going and getting the network business going. A lot of times there's this cold start that you kind of have to like hand crank your way through. How long were you guys in Tampa before you launched Atlanta? At least a year. Okay. And, and so uh, we were there maybe 10 months. And then, and then the following season, we, we went down to Atlanta only three hours away from Nashville, mm-hmm. built it from the ground up. And then once we got those three going, we were like, okay, we've been at this for four years. Like, and we're still not able to pay ourselves. I mean, like I, we were able to pay my one co-founder like 200 bucks a month just to like eat on. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm sorry, a week. I'm sorry, a week. Okay, a week, yeah, a, yeah, week okay, a week, yeah, a week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's grocery bills. Yeah, week, yeah, yeah. Like he was on like a $5 a day food budget. I mean, it was really, 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 oh, really no. tough. Yeah. Uh, but um, once we did, we had a, we had like a, we had like a reality check. Like, okay, we got to move quick now. Now we have it figured out. And then we rolled out a new city every month. Uh, from from there out, and we just started growing a lot quicker. Yeah. And we figured out figured out a lot of the tech side of it, a lot of the the rollout strategy side of it, a lot of the marketing side of it, and then we just we funneled every dime we could back in the business. And, you know, and here we are eight eight years later. We've got a profitable business. It's actually fun now. You know, we pay ourselves a good salary. We have a great team. Uh, you know, we have people in like on the right seats on the bus that are really good at what they do. Um, and and then now it's actually starting to get fun. That's a harsh reality that a lot of people don't see of entrepreneurship is that a lot of times it takes years without you putting money in your personal bank account and just reinvesting into the business over and over and over and over before it really takes off. That's why nine out of 10 businesses fail. You know, it takes three to five years for a business to really get going. I spent years, man, that I didn't even have $10,000 in my bank account. Yeah, when I hit that 10,000 mark, yeah, Mark, I was like, yes, success, right? 10,000 bucks. And so, but that's, yeah, I mean, so many entrepreneurs 
founders have to go through that process, even after like you went through an eight figure exit, right? Um, in all terms of entrepreneurship and in America's standards, you're very successful, but then you're reinvesting and starting a completely new business where you didn't take a salary for years and worked for free essentially. Right. Yes. Um, it was, yeah. it was a reinvention, uh, mm -hmm. moment. You know, I, I was starting a, a completely new type of business. I was, I was inventing a product that didn't exist. I, I kind of under indexed on that. I didn't know how hard that was going to be. Mm -hmm. And then the tech piece of it too, it was, it was really almost, you know, I, I was solving my own problem. I knew the industry. And so that helped me. Uh, but all the other things were really tough and I kind of, it kind of almost had no parallel mm -hmm. uh, to anything I had done before. And I'm glad I did it. You know, like for me, 20 years of business, it, business is the thing that causes me to level up. It's the thing that causes me to read books. I don't want to read, watch stuff on YouTube. I don't want to watch, listen to podcasts. I don't want to listen to like, but I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm getting stronger, wiser, more humble. Uh, and like without the business, none of that's there. And, and like, I'm sloppy. And so mm -hmm. that's the way I kind of look at it. It's the way it's, that's what's gotten me through a lot of the hard years. It's like, okay, this is the thing that's like marching your life forward. And, uh, and I think like, if you look at your business that way and kind of reframe it and like help you see it from like a, uh, like a big picture, like, okay, this is the thing that's forcing me to level up. You guys did four years with no salary. Um, what kept you and the other, the other co-founders going, what kept you guys going day to day? Little wins. And so from like a sustenance standpoint, you know, I had sold my business, I had retired. So I didn't, I didn't have to like have a, a salary to live off of. But on the other hand, I didn't want to plow those proceeds into this other thing because quite frankly, I never wanted to pick up a weed eater ever again in my life. Like I, I didn't want to go backwards. So I was like, I was like, man, I have mowed yards for 14 hours a day. I've come home smelling like gas with grass all over me. Uh -huh. I never want to go back gas to that. Gas and grass, buddy. Gas yeah, I never want to go back to that again. And so like that terrified me to an extent. And so, you know, I had taken the proceeds from that business and locked it down, you know, in, in like really like safe not sexy, illiquid investments. <laughs> and, and so, and so like, I didn't have like a war chest to plow into green pal. It very much had to stand up on its own and we had to fund it out of its own revenues. So for me, you know, I was able to like hustle on this thing and, 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 you know, I mean, like I've been at this eight years, but I haven't worked a day in eight years. Like I, this is what I want to do. And yeah. so it wasn't, it wasn't like, this, this like psych out thing I had to do for my two co-founders, they still work their day jobs. And so uh, they were coming in nights and weekends uh, working on this thing. And that's just kind of how we survived. And, and so we would, we would uh, celebrate the little wins. Like I told you, we, you know, we wanted to do just a hundred transactions uh, in a week. And we knew if we, I knew if we get to a hundred, we can get to 500, we get to a thousand, mm -hmm. 5,000, 10,000. I knew if like, if we could just like, keep these little small goals and hit them, we could keep doubling. And right. that's what kept us in the game uh, was, was the numbers were small, but they were double, doubling and we were, we were celebrating them. And I knew that, you know, if we could make it work just in Nashville, we could, we could install it in every city in America. Right. How many cities are you guys in now? You know, something like over 300, you know, I've lost count. It, it's, it, we're in every major city uh, that, that, that you can think of. And then uh, now we're, we are expanding into all of the towns and, and, and suburbs all over the country that are like sub 50,000 in population where we're going into all those towns. And like my co-founder, all he does is PR. And so he, okay. you know, he is like, like going to Lubbock, Texas or, uh, or, uh, Bozeman, Montana to like mm -hmm. be on their TV, be in their newspaper. Like every mm -hmm. one of these communities has to be built from the ground up. There's no way to just scale it. Uh, you have to like build each one individually. 
Right. Will you guys, you think you'll ever go international? Once we have saturated the United States, uh, we'll move into Canada, UK, and Australia. And that could be next year or the year thereafter. Mm. Um, you know, I think in certain businesses, you got to go international. Like Airbnb, that was one of the first things they had to figure out was like, how do we get this thing in Paris and in in Sydney? And like, because for them, like their network is an international network. Right. Um, for us, somebody in Chicago doesn't give a crap if somebody in London is using it. And so like, I think a lot of times, um, marketplace entrepreneurs can get sidetracked by like the flashiness of going international uh, when in fact it has nothing to do with reinforcing the loops on the business. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that that was a mistake that TaskRabbit made early on. Uh, I don't know, know if you're familiar with that app, but mm -hmm. it was an app where and it's still around, but it was an app where you could basically get like somebody to come put your Ikea furniture together and you could just order them right through the app or okay. get them to like uh, do some handyman stuff. Okay. Really well funded, uh, well publicized. And I, in my estimation, like they went international too quick like they they tried to get it all over europe uh when in fact nobody really gave a crap about it in wichita kansas and so really like a lot of the times the least sexy your ideas and the least sexy your execution the greater your chances of success if if you are just staying like pragmatic and and, and sustainable with what your approach is uh the better your chances of success and for us you know if not enough people are using the app in Ocala, Florida, then we're going to like figure out how to get it fixed in Ocala, Florida before we go to London. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes complete sense. Let's talk about profitability because we talk a lot about these network, you know, Uber's the one everybody mentions quite often. Um, but a lot of people, they, you know, don't know that they're not making money, right? Uber, Uber's broke. Um, TaskRabbit, you just mentioned, when, yeah, it sounds like they kind of had a similar experience. How, let's see, how, Brian, are you managing the, the finances and the profitability to make sure that you're going to stay on top of that so you don't end up being like Uber? Is it just not taking outside investment to making sure you can keep the eye on the ball or, or what's your strategy? For me, part of my strategy philosophy of business is, you know, revenue is the best form of financing. Uh, it can keep your eye on the ball. It can make sure that you're, that you're delivering a delightful experience. It can make sure that you're holding on to people. You know, mm -hmm. if, if revenue is like the form of financing, then you are focused on retention. You know, you have to keep these people that are using the, the product. So it kind of serves as like a self-correcting forcing function. And it always has for us. And so a lot of times as, as the, as the CEO, as the owner, as the founder, whatever you want to call yourself, your job is, among other things, one of your jobs is a capital allocator. And so you have this capital. And that, I mean, that could only be a thousand dollars a month mm -hmm. in the early days. That's kind of what it was. Like, how are we going to spend this thousand dollars? Make sure we do it right. Yeah. But uh, as a CEO, CEO's job is to be a capital allocator, to understand that, okay, uh, you know, we're, we've grown revenues by 30, 40% this year. You know, how are we going to put that to work? Are we going to put that to work on more customer acquisition? Are we going to hire two more engineers? Are we going to like put more, more, more head? on the growth team are we going to uh, hire an SEO lead that we need are we going and so you're really trying to like map out okay how am I gonna how am I gonna put this money to work to make the company more money and a lot of it is is quantitative which is my weakness and some of it is just like intuition and gut which is my strength so uh, like if you're self-funded it's, it's easy and it's, it's it's easy to kind of stay in check if you've raised five or ten or twenty million dollars um, it's easy to get sloppy and a lot of times you'll see these like 
companies coming out of the Bay Area or, or just well-funded tech startups in general that are just kicking butt and like they have just come out of the gate screaming and like they've raised all kinds of money and, and they're like just scaling and what you don't realize is like that founder is on their second or third lap. They're on their second or third trip. Like mm-hmm. they've started a venture back business and it failed and they, they may have had a little exit under their belt. Like Travis Kalanick, the founder of Uber, like that was his fourth business. Mm-hmm. And he had already like crashed $10 million of capital on the ground. He already had a successful exit for eight figures, like, and like mm-hmm. in the tech, tech world. And so like, you know, he's coming to like day one of Uber. It still took 11 years to build that business, but he's coming to day one of that, of that company with all of that experience and all of that scar tissue. And then, then he knows that he's got to move fast and he knows how to move fast. And so a lot of times, like until you've done that and made those mistakes, um, it's, it's hard to do it right out of the gate. They say like a good venture capitalist and an Air Force pilot have one thing in common. They have to crash $50 million into the ground to get good. And so I didn't have the luxury of doing that. I had to do it right, you know, and like building a pragmatic business was, was the only approach for me. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that analogy there. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I think it's just genius that the way you've done this and built it up and it's so easy to get into the appeal of taking outside money to, to start to scale and start to like you guys probably, I'm sure you've been offered money. I don't know if you have or not, but um, you could have done that when you're like, Oh, in Atlanta, this extra, you know, X amount of dollars could really help us out launching this network or this city. Um, but you, your last business also, you never took any outside money as well. Like you built that up to eight figures, right? That's correct. And, yeah. and that approach kind of informed the second approach. And, okay. and so I knew that I didn't want to like spend five years on something and end up with a goose egg. And I kind of was able to recognize that the route of raising venture capital is kind of a binary outcome. It's either a huge breakout grand slam success for everybody involved or it's it's a zero and you know maybe there might be like a single and a double and an acquire and i had no interest in either of those and so for me like i was able to recognize that it's a it's a bad bet now that said you look on your phone every app on the home screen is brought to life by venture capital you know so it's mm-hmm. like i'm not i'm not like hating on that route my point is if you're raising venture capital and you want to like build a billion dollar business, you, you can almost, I live in Nashville and we have like a hundred people a, a, a month move here that want to be a, the next big country music star. It's almost <laughs> the same dynamics. It's uh-huh. almost like, it's almost like going to LA and thinking you're going to be the next movie star mm-hmm. because that's kind of like how it shakes out. And you know, the, the Pareto principle, you're talking about the 80, 20, mm-hmm. like that power law very much exists in venture capital. And it's really like a, like a 98, two, you know, like 2% return the, the other 98. And, you know, like all you have to do is like, look at Y Combinator, like Y Combinator is like the greatest accelerator of these businesses in the world. Like Mm -hmm. names like Instacart, Stripe, DoorDash, Dropbox, Reddit. uh, And there's, there's like 50 more and that have, that have come out of YCOM. And, and you look at like these guys, they, they're operating at the NFL. Like this is the creme de la creme of accelerators. And like, they have produced all of these big brand names that, you know, and there might be 50 of those names, Mm -hmm. maybe a hundred, but what you don't realize is like, they have funded like something like 4,000 companies (laughs) over the last 15 years. So it's 50 or hundred names out of Mm 4,000. And that's the NFL. Yeah. And so like, you know, if you're going to go that route, it's very much like a, like a binary outcome and you have to be willing to sign up for that. You know, you're going to get rich or die trying. 
Right. I'm always curious how businesses decide how they're going to divide their money up in network business. It's really interesting because um, a lot of times it is the apps grow via word of mouth. Right. But uh, you said you were putting, you know, time investments and you've got a PR, you know, one of the co-founders does all PR. How, how much how do you decide how much to put um, into the marketing side of things with this style of business? Uh, versus saving some money or reinvesting it, and, and and how do you how do you guys divide all that up? For us, we we focus on just a couple things at a time, and and we are demand side constrained. We can mm-hmm. uh, not you know not super easy, but we can requ- acquire suppliers fairly in a fairly straightforward manner. Uh, we do a little bit of uh, Facebook ads and a lot of content marketing, and so we, we can get enough suppliers on the platform fairly easily. Mm-hmm. The the more challenging side of the transaction is how do you put the app in more hands of homeowners and consumers to use it. Right. And, and so most multi-sided marketplaces are demand side constrained or put another way, the person that's putting the credit card number down, they're the harder side of the equation to, mm-hmm. to attract in most cases. And so for us, that's definitely the case. And so we know the more homeowners we can get onto the platform, that's what kicks off the flywheel. Right. Uh, we don't have, what they call a single player mode. And so if you're building a multi-sided marketplace, it can help to have like a single player mode where one side of the transaction can use it solo uh, and get value out of it. We have never been able to figure that out. And so we know like our success and the platform's growth is dependent on one thing is how many homeowners we can get to try it out and and then set them up with service providers. And that's what kicks off the virtuous cycle. Right. And so we are always looking for ways to innovate on distribution, ways to innovate on on acquiring more consumers, whether it be through SEO, uh, content, PR, some performance marketing. We're always experimenting, always looking at reinvesting every dime that we can into into more of that because that's what funnels the growth. Yeah, I do some mentoring and coaching for for entrepreneurs in, in Nashville as a hobby uh, for free. And um, one thing I always see is like this build it and they will come mentality. Mm-hmm. And that is just not the case. It doesn't matter how good your app is, how good your network, how good your marketplace is. You have to have some sort of innovation on growth, innovation on user acquisition to acquire one side of the transaction to kick it off. Like right. it's not just the, like the platform's existence is not good enough. You also have to figure out how you're going to distribute it. Yeah. And I could second that from podcasting very similar just because you're building it, you know, people aren't going to come sort of thing or people aren't going to listen. You've got to, you got to stand out in some way. What are, what are some of the most successful ways you found getting those homeowners on your app? You know, I think uh, looking back in business, you can, for me, like 20 years in business is, is uh, I can look at it like a video game almost. Mm-hmm. And, and like I can, not that I'm a big gamer, but I, I grew up, you know, in the 80s and playing Nintendo. Nintendo and, and Atari. And, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, man. So like, that's kind of how I see the, see the world of business almost. Like looking at it like a video game, 10 levels. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you're first getting started, like level one is very different than level eight, nine, 10. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of business owners, entrepreneurs make the mistake of like they're in level one and they're worried about Bowser. And you really shouldn't. And so my point is, is like our user acquisition strategy, among everything else, has changed as we have gone through the levels. And the f- level one, you know, we 
we had to figure out how to get a hundred people to sign up for the damn thing. Yeah. And so we passed out door hangers. Like we passed out a hundred thousand door hangers all over wow. Nashville, Tennessee. Like yeah. I got bit by a dog two times. And then we figured out, <laughs> we figured out that like 10 customers per dog bite was not a user, a scalable user acquisition strategy that we wanted to pursue, exactly. but it did get us like the first hundred some odd people to use the app. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to meet with them and get feedback and figure out like, okay, this is where we suck. This is what we're doing. Right. This is where we need to improve. And, and also this is how, we can reach more of these folks and and so and so that got us through level one level two was like okay we're still just in nashville but we got to figure out a way to get like 100 people a week to sign up and we can't be like passing out door hangers all the time so what do we do and so we kind of experimented with seo and content and and we just started pumping out like the best content around service providers in Nashville, writing up beautiful bios for them, like great pictures of them uh, and like what they do and how their business is different from their competitors. And like, we just spent all of our time on level two, focusing on that and trying to get some traction there. And that, that kind of formed us how we kept on progressing through the levels. And now, you know, SEO and organic search is how we get like half of our users come through that channel mm -hmm. and the other half come from PR and, and, and word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And so we would never have been able to get there had we not just like chewed this elephant one little bite at a time and worked our way through every level and not worried about anything else. And so, so, so start small, uh, you know, Start small, but be ambitious is, is kind of how we've approached it. I, I know you mentioned using Facebook ads to get some of the service businesses onto the app. Um, do you guys use Facebook ads or social, social media ads in general to get homeowners on the app as well? We have experimented in it. We have probably spent something like around $100,000 um, mm -hmm. trying to unlock that channel. And while we can get traction out of Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Instagram stories, Twitter ads, Pinterest ads, we can get traction. We still have not been able to replicate like, okay, I have a hundred grand or I have 10 grand. Should I put it in Facebook ads or should I just double down on organic search? Like, should I go hire that content creator that could really help us? Should I go hire that mm -hmm. digital PR that could really help us like get more backlinks? Should I go hire this, like this content strategist or this designer that can really like rework our, our articles or this technical SEO? Like if you're going to execute at an organic search uh, strategy, like you have, you're going to have an, a full-time engineer or two or three. That's all they do is just work on technical SEO. So so while it's not easy to connect the dots on SEO, like I know if I put in 10K, I get out 15, which on performance marketing, if you're really good, you can. Yeah. I haven't been able to get close to the ROI that, that, that we're able to de deploy on organic search that I can like pissing it away on Instagram stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I mean, you're granted, not on TikTok, like, so that's what you're saying. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we will. So I, mean, I guess I got to learn how to dance and then, and then maybe, maybe that might work. Get all the service providers dancing. Yeah. Yeah. TikTok, <laughs> or, <laughs> I don't know that anybody wants to see that. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. So I, I always like to ask Brian, like, um, what are some say, like you're, you seem like you've got a ton of energy and you've built, you know, two companies now, very successful companies. What are some, how do you maintain this, this fiery state? How do you maintain your state of mind on a regular basis? Maybe habits or rituals or routines that you do regularly to keep things going for yourself? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really like have like the Tony Robbins thing, the Tony Robbins energy, you know, like it's not, it's not mm -hmm. my default. I think what propels me forward is really kind of looking at the alternative and like understanding, like if I don't work on this project and drive it forward, I could potentially piss away the next five or 10 years. And like that paranoia is what scares me to keep 
driving the ball forward. And so like, that's kind of like how I back into it. Um, one thing that has made sense to me, I, I read a book uh, a few months ago by a guy by the name of Donald Miller, uh, a million miles in a thousand years is the name of the book, really good book. And the, and the point of that book is he says to live an interesting life, you have to have an interesting storyline to your life. And so that means that you quite frankly have to go out and like do interesting stuff. Right. And for me, like I'll, I read it and I'm like, Hmm, this makes sense. And, and for me, like my business is the storyline of my life. My business, if you think of your life in like in the, in the context of you're the main character and you're like marauding your way through life and you're going through these challenges and you have these setbacks, but the hero always perseveres and like gets to the mountaintop. Like, like that's a good story. That's a movie you'd sit down and watch mm-hmm. and versus like a, a boring movie would be like, there are no challenges and like, they just like get there and like, nobody wants to watch that story. And so if you can think of your life and in, in, in particularly for me, like your life in business in that context, it can help like take a lot of the guesswork out and a lot of the like self-pity or whatever, like out of the equation is like, okay, yeah, no, I am like living an interesting life. My business is, is causing me to live an interesting life and it helps you kind of see it from that paradigm and it just keeps you like grinding on it to where you don't give up. So it's that fear of just wasting your life, right? Like have, Laird Hamilton calls it a half-lived life. That's right. What do you think? That's like right. if you weren't like working in his business or didn't have a business, or maybe you experienced this after you, your first exit, um, you know, would you like revert to alcohol or bad habits or <laughs> just curious? Cause often that's, that's yeah. the fear that motivates uh, a lot of people. Uh, so you, you nailed it. Like I struggle with, with obesity. I've been like 300 pounds. And so okay. for me is it, what a, what a funny thing is, is like when I did like take that time off and, and retired the first time I got, I got fat. Like I gained 50 pounds because I was just not getting up in the morning and doing the stuff I needed to do. And so I, I think like, uh, there, all these things are intertwined, you know, a lot of like your physical fitness, your health and, you know, meditation or your spiritual, uh, uh, health, like a lot of these things inform how well you're doing in business. And so if your business requires you to be like tuned to that degree, then it can be a thing that kind of a reinforcing loop. If the business is not there, and you're kind of just like mailing it in on a job that's not not stressing you as, and it's not like causing you to level up then you can live a boring life and you mm-hmm. and the next thing you know a decade's gone by and you haven't done anything really interesting you haven't like conquered any challenges you you haven't been through any lows that you pulled yourself out of you you haven't built something that people get value out of and like for me like that scares me to take action and to keep keep grinding on this thing and getting it better and better how long was it between your exit and, you, and when you started green pal Right around six months, you know. And, oh, because it uh, wasn't that long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like I, I sat around for a year. I, I got that itch pretty quick. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to get back in the game. Was there a low point within those six months that said, I've got to do something because, you know, gaining weight and is it going to be you know, sitting around gaining weight is not, not good for me? You know, um, for me, uh, one one moment I do remember was, was I was on a – on a beach in Costa Rica and, and like the, the biggest setback I experienced that week was the bar ran out of my favorite type of tequila. And I realized <laughs> I was like, I was like, damn, you know, I am like cut out to solve bigger problems than this. Uh, oh, so nice. I've got, I've got to figure out what the hell I'm doing. And, uh, and <laughs> you know, it's like, like, that was a moment I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like a horrible moment. Uh, which <laughs> beach in Costa Rica? I used to live there. I lived in uh, Manuel Antonio. Uh, Tamarindo. Tamarindo, yeah. Very yeah. cool. Cool. Um, yeah, man. Well, dude, I've loved this interview. I think this isn't like 
when I get to talk to people with network businesses, it's, it's phenomenal. Like the, the definition of the business method, uh, the title of this podcast is actually a new way of doing business. And one of the reasons I named it that, because we're always talking to entrepreneurs, creating new ways of doing business. And this is flat out, you know, a, a new way of doing business, linking lawn care providers with homeowners to help uh, them get their landscaping done. And I think it's very, very genius. And on the cusp of the change that we're going to see more and more of like the technology change in this world, making life more convenient for all of us. So kudos, man. Um, I know it's been a lot of hard work for you and I know you're, you know, going to uncharted territory with this company and I wish you all the most success, um, throughout, you know, the, the life of this company, as long as you're with it. Um, anything else you'd like to say before we part with the listeners, Brian? Yeah. You know, um, if, if COVID has, has like hollowed out your business and has got you wondering what the hell I'm doing with my life, like, you know, you, you can, going back to the storyline thing, look at it like you're the hero of your story and you're going through this low point right now and it's not happening to you, it's happening for you. And, you know, this is like part of the story that you're going to look back on five, 10 years from now and be like, wow, I got through that and this made me who I am. And, and uh, just, just stick with it. Like it can be an opportunity to take your business down to the studs and rebuild it from the inside out. And, uh, in, in, in five or 10 years, you'll be glad it happened. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the share show, man. I really appreciate all you've shared with us. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you guys have going on at green pal, what's the best place they can do that. Yeah. So anybody listening to this doesn't want to waste time mowing your grass. Uh, you want to smell like <laughs> gas and grass. grass you, and can gas. Just, you can just download green pal in the app store or play store. Anybody wants to reach me. I've been hanging out on LinkedIn a lot lately. You can hit me up there. Cool. And thank you so much again, Brian. We really appreciate your time. Um, we really appreciate it. It's fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.